We've been reading and commenting on the seven churches which our Lord wrote to the churches in Asia Minor 1,900 years ago. And uh, as he concludes each of these letters, he does so with the admonition to give heed, to listen, to hear. Those who have ears, he says, listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And uh, since most of us have at least one year, a year speaking for myself, we, uh, should, uh, we should listen to what he has to say. As we've looked through these uh, letters, the thing that strikes me again and again is that these are the things that teach us how to do what really matters. If we want to keep from spinning our wheels and playing church and wasting our time, then we need to listen to what the Spirit of God says to the churches. These are letters that keep us on course. We simply don't have time to waste. And so we need to listen to the Lord. Whatever else we may do as a church, these are the things that we must do. These are the fundamental requirements of God's people. Now, we learn from the church in Ephesus the necessity of speaking the truth in love. We need the truth, as it's delivered to us by the prophets and apostles, the, uh, the Word of God. And we need to cling to it, not deviate from it, believe it. But uh, at the same time, we need to deliver it in love. And we need to, to uh, prevent anything from enabling us to express our love for each other. The, uh, the church, particularly the evangelical church, is widely known in, in secular society for splitting and dividing over all sorts of issues, many of them minor issues, distinctives that we, claim to, uh, that we cling to, which uh, really don't matter a great deal. We need to stop that sort of thing. We need to tolerate one another, love one another, no matter what it, what it entails. Reach out in love and embrace those that, uh, that may disagree somewhat in their approach to the truth. They may have a different perspective, a different interpretation, but we need to love them. That's what will make the world sit up and take notice. From the church in Smyrna, we learned the necessity of enduring through hard times. This was a church that was under a great deal of pressure. They were being persecuted. What made them outstanding as a church was their endurance. As Paul puts it, we need to strive together for the gospel. Endure. Do what's right, no matter what, uh, what pressures exist. And that, he says, is an evident sign to the world that God is for us. And then we learn from both the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira the necessity for purity. With the church in Pergamum, he speaks of the necessity to, uh, to, to help one another when we deviate from the course. When you see a brother who's wandering away from the truth, go, uh, go get him. As Paul says in, in Galatians, uh, when you see a brother who's acting contrary to the truth, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a, in a spirit of meekness and gentleness, considering yourself, lest you too be tempted. We need to help one another maintain purity in our lives. Then from the church in Thyatira, we learn the necessity of being pure in our teaching. When uh, men or, or women are teaching something that doesn't coincide with apostolic teaching, then we need to take steps, firm steps, to see to it that purity uh, in, uh, in teaching is maintained. And then from Sardis, we learn the necessity of, of reality. We need to be real people. We need to stop being churchy and uptight and stuffy and just be real because that's what the world is looking for. I picked up a magazine the other day and, and uh, read this quote, very striking to me. 
He says there is potency and wholesomeness in living life transparently. Rather than endlessly erecting poses and postures and fraudulent pieties, this modern world of ours is generously supplied with pitchmen, con artists, and those who have axes to grind. These are enthusiastically and persistently using the big lie on us. Hence, it is an, an arresting and refreshing experience to meet a person or a group that is authentic and transparently open. That's what we need uh, to be and to do. And then from the church in Philadelphia, we learn the necessity for a straightforward, bold proclamation of the truth. And finally, from Laodicea, as we'll see this morning, the need for faith and dependence. So these are the things that we must do. We must exercise love, speak the truth in love. We must maintain purity, reality, proclamation, and faith. We may do other things, but these are the things that we must do if we want to listen to what the Lord has to say to the churches. Now, let's uh, look at the church, the message, the message to the church in Laodicea, beginning with verse 14 of chapter 3, Revelation 3, 14. <clears throat> and to the messenger of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed." And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this uh, letter, as you'll notice, follows the same format of all the other letters. He begins with a description of himself, the, uh, the author of this letter. And he describes himself in two ways. He is, first of all, the amen, and then he is the beginning. Now, he defines for his mostly uh, Gentile uh, listeners the meaning of the word amen. It's defined here in the phrase that follows the faithful and true witness. That's what amen means. Many of the people to whom this letter was read uh, were Gentiles, and they wouldn't understand the background of this word. It's an Old Testament word. It's a Hebrew word. Hebrew words amen. He simply transliterated it into English. It was used to validate oaths. It meant uh, that's the way it is. That's truth. Or we might say more colloquially today, sure enough, that's, that's the way it is. When uh, Walter Cronkite uh, signed off his newscasts each day, he would say, that's the way it is, March the 1st, 1981. Basically, what he was saying was, amen. Perhaps that's why he was the most uh, trusted man in America during his time. But uh, that's what the Lord wants us to learn about his character. He's trustworthy. As we saw last week, the perspective that Scripture takes... Uh, 
upon us is that we're not trustworthy. We're all inclined to lie and deceive. We're all liars, but uh, he is the God who cannot lie. It's not even, uh, the issue is not even will he lie. He cannot lie. He's utterly uh, trustful. He said to Abraham at one point in, in the patriarch's life, I promise you you're going to have a son. Abraham was in the last quarter of his life. His wife Sarah was barren. Her womb was dead. She was incapable of bearing children. And God said, Abraham, you're going to have a child. And not only that, you'll be uh, the father of, of numerous descendants, so numerous that uh, they, they can't be counted. There'll be more descendants than there are stars in the sky or sand on the seashore. And Abraham said, Amen. That's the way it is. That's truth. Now, Abraham was a hard-nosed businessman, ran a trucking firm out of Ur of the Chaldees, and uh, he knew how things uh, happened. He, he wasn't born yesterday, and he knew that Sarah was barren, but he trusted God. He knew that the Lord could be relied upon, and therefore he said, Amen. Now, that we need to learn about the Lord. In contrast to everything else we hear in the world, He's trustworthy. He's the Amen. He's the true and faithful witness. And secondly, he's described here as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, that doesn't mean that our Lord had a beginning. He's not talking about origins. The word that's translated beginning here is the Greek word arche, from which we get our term archetype, prototype. It simply means first. And... Uh, Jesus was the first of the new creation of God. It was God's intention to do something about humanity. We got ourselves in a terrible mess, and uh, the Lord was the only one who could do anything about it. And so through the cross and the resurrection, God created a new humanity. And uh, Jesus is the first of that new race whose ties to the old life are broken. We don't need to be embarrassed by the shame of our past life. We don't need to be intimidated or hindered by anything that happened in our past, broken marriages and broken promises and, and uh, all of these things that, uh, that, that keep us from enjoying the freedom that we're intended to have as, as men and women. We're new creatures in Christ, and Jesus is the first of that new creation. He went through the cross and the resurrection and became the first new man. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 16 and 17, he's describing his former relationship to the Lord Jesus, and he says, I once knew him in the flesh. He must have heard the Lord preaching on the streets in Jerusalem. But he says, I don't know him any longer after the flesh. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Every day is a new beginning. God recreates afresh every day. It's like playing golf and uh, not keeping a cumulative score. Every hole uh, is a new beginning. And that's the way it is with, with the Lord. Uh, you can forget the fact that you yelled at your husband this morning or that you were cross with the kids while you were getting them ready to go to church or whatever uh, may have happened that you feel a little guilty about this morning because right now where you're seated, you are a new creation. And uh, it's a recreation that goes on and on. Now, 
After that introduction, he turns to a word of rebuke. They needed the introduction because they were people who needed to know that the Lord is trustworthy and that there was a new creation available to them. The rebuke follows in verses 15 through 17. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, they would know exactly what he was talking about when he said, you're lukewarm and therefore I'll, I'll spit you out of my mouth. They, uh, Laodicea was situated in a geothermal region, much like Boise, and there were hot springs and geysers all around. And so they know what it was to uh, drink that tepid mineral water. And it's that figure that the Lord has in mind. He defines for them what he means by lukewarmness in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The obvious contrast here is between what they say and what they were in reality. They were self-deceived. They did not know that they were wretched. Now, we read that and we say, oh, I know who these folks are. That's the liberal church uh, down the street or downtown or wherever. But uh, that's not what he has in mind at all. These people attended the Laodicean Bible Church. They were uh, well-taught. These were church-going folks. They had on their coffee tables copies of uh, Patmos Monthly. They uh, read the Bible assiduously. They carried the right translations. They were involved uh, on various committees within the church. They taught in Sunday school. They supported the missionary program of the church. They listened to the Apostle Paul's tapes. They were, uh, they were good people externally. But uh, the Lord says, you've missed those deeper issues that I am most concerned about. Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law, justice, and truth and righteousness. And it's these things that uh, these people had missed. Externally, they looked good, but inwardly, they were empty and wretched and poor, he says. It's interesting that <clears throat> these people apparently had had contact with the folks over in Colossae. Of all the, the churches that are described here, in Asia Minor, this church was closest to the city of Colossae. And as you know, Paul had written a letter to the church there. It's contained in our New Testament, the epistle to the Colossians. And in that letter, he said, now you be sure when you finish reading this letter to the church in Colossae that you take it over to Laodicea and read it there. And you folks in Colossae, you read the letter to the church in Laodicea as well. So there'd been an exchange of letters. The letter to the Laodiceans is lost. We, we don't have it in our New Testaments. But we do have the letter to the Colossian church. And uh, it's this issue that he refers to in Colossians 3 because apparently the church there had the same problem. It would be worthwhile looking back to that letter, Colossians 3. He begins by talking about the new creation. In verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have a hidden source of power now. That's a part of your new humanity. Therefore, he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. That's the word for fornication, the general word for sexual immorality. 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And all these folks in Colossae and those in Laodicea would say, well, we're, we're not guilty of those things. We're good church-going folks. We're not guilty of adultery and greed. But in verse 8, Paul goes on to say, but now you also put them all aside. That is, every manifestation of the old humanity. Anger, that's the word for a slow burn, resentment or bitterness. Wrath, that's the word for outbursts of of anger, malice, slander, the word for gossip, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, you don't have to pose. You have nothing to prove. You're new people in Christ, so act like it. Put away your resentment, your bitterness, your anger, your defensiveness, your hostility, and begin to act like new creatures. Now, apparently the church in Colossae had the same problem as the folks in Laodicea. They thought they were fine church-going people, but they had never really come to grips with these weightier matters of the law. And that's why Jesus says the whole thing is, is distasteful to me. It's disgusting to me. Those are strong words from our Lord's lips. As a matter of fact, he says, I'd rather have you cold or hot. I'd rather you were totally unresponsive to the gospel or extremely responsible than to be where you are. Because it is, in fact, much easier to work with people who are committed pagans than it is with Christians who think they have it made and who are living superficially and are self-deceived. Someone asked C.S. Lewis once if England were pagan, and his response was, would that it were. <laughs> because when people are are antagonistic to the gospel. They are, in fact, easier to reach than people who are just religious and are hiding under a guise of religiosity and are going through all the rigmarole of church life, but there's no reality. They don't love one another. They haven't learned to deal with their bitterness and anger, defensiveness, their slander, their gossip. These are the great issues about which Jesus is most concerned. Our tendency is to deal with peripheral things because those come much more, they're easier instead of the real heart of the matter, which is a life that corresponds to the new creation. Now, because it's such a serious thing, the Lord counsels them in verse 18 to buy from him gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. You might draw the conclusion from those uh, words that we should not trust banks, technology, or doctors, but uh, that's not what he's saying. These are, these are spiritual entities, spiritual elements, which we can only get from the Lord. He is, however, thinking of the commercial life of the city, because these were all things for which Laodicea was famous. Uh, they had a large financial district. They were a banking community. They had large, uh, progressive, very, uh, very wealthy uh, uh, banks there. They were on the east side of the Roman Empire, and so all of the trade from the, from the east came right into Laodicea, and money flowed into their, their banks. They were wealthy, wealthy people. And they were uh, trendsetters in fashions. They 
produced a, a unique soft black wool from which they made uh, special garments. And uh, they had their equivalent of Neiman Marcus or whatever uh, uh, in, the, in the city. And uh, they were famous for a, a medical school which uh, produced a miracle drug called Phrygian uh, salve that was placed on the eyes and uh, they could heal some of the eye diseases. They were rampant in, in the ancient world. It was a very progressive, sophisticated city. When I think of Laodicea, I think of cities like Dallas, Texas, or San Francisco with their trend-setting uh, fashions and financial districts and medical centers and distinguished universities and a lot of wealth, people ensconced in their hillside villas, you know, jetting over to the Mediterranean for uh, the season or over to the Alps to ski or Europe to take the baths or whatever. That's, uh, that's the way Laodicea was. And uh, the problem was that the spirit of the city had found its way right into the church, and they were thinking the same way. And what the Lord is saying is that those commodities which are really necessary for life can never be bought with money from your banks. Your blindness can never be healed by Phrygian powder. Your nakedness can never be clothed by uh, the uh, Bill Blass uh, garments that you wear. Uh, that, that's not where you find these things. Now, it really does seem to me that the Lord is talking about things which cannot be produced from any other source. Only the Lord can provide. What are they? Remember that, that Revelation speaks symbolically about all things. And here, each of these elements uh, represent some spiritual reality. Gold, throughout the book of Revelation, represents worth. We use the... the uh, the symbol in the same way. We talk about someone's love being worth more than gold. It was a symbol for worth. And isn't that something that we desperately want and need? Some of you have gone through divorces in the past year, and you know what that does to your, your feeling of self-worth. And you struggle with your identity and feelings about, about yourself. It's, it's so hard. Well, the Lord is saying that a sense of worth comes not from buying a new wardrobe or making a big deal in, in business or uh, uh, trying out a new hairdo. But uh, it comes from the Lord. He's the only one that can, that can give you that sense of security and, 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 and identity that you're searching for. It um, doesn't come any other way. I uh, can remember as a, as a high school student, my sense of worth came from the fact that I owned a 32 three-window Ford. Uh, it had a 48 Mercury engine in it, and I bought the most radical can that I could buy, not because I raced it, but uh, because I liked the way it idled when you stopped at a, at a red light, you know. <laughs> and uh, I can remember driving around town and th thinking as I pulled up to a, a red light, you know, and it was idling, kachunk, kachunk, kachunk that uh, the person right next to me would look over my car and he would say, boy, is he ever cool. Look at that uh, three-window, uh, 32 three-window Ford. But do you know that wasn't what they were thinking at all? They were probably thinking, look at that pile of junk, why didn't he get it tuned up? But, but for me, it gave me a tremendous sense of worth just to drive that car around until one day I went by to pick up uh, a girl that I was trying to impress at uh, one of the high schools there and I picked her up, and she got in the car, and I laid a big stripe of rubber right out in front of the school, and she looked at me, and she said, Roper, why don't you grow up? <laughs> and I uh, sold the car the next week. 
And I bought a gray four-door Chevy sedan with black wall tires and an automatic transmission. <clears throat> that, was, uh, that was quite a come down, but I discovered that you just can't get a sense of worth from an automobile or from excelling in athletics or excelling academically or through uh, making a great deal of money in business. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but they don't give you that deep down sense of worth. It comes from knowing how God sees you, that you're accepted in the Beloved, that uh, He doesn't hold anything against you. The warfare is over. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to demonstrate your, your goodness to Him. You don't have, have to have more spit and polish. He just accepts you the way you are. And that's how we learn acceptance and worth, you see. And there isn't any other place to get that. You only get it from the Lord. The second thing that uh, He counsels them to buy is a white garment, which uh, throughout Scripture represents righteousness, both objective righteousness, that is, the righteousness that's imputed to us or imparted to us by Christ. He sees us now as He sees the Lord Jesus, perfectly righteous. And also subjective righteousness, that is, the outer, the outworking of, uh, of Christ's goodness, His character. But what He's talking about here basically is character. Where do you go to find character? Where do you go to get the resources to be loving and kind and truthful and courageous and thoughtful and sensitive? You can produce those things temporarily just by a good, uh, good effort in the flesh, but uh, it doesn't last very long. As Paul says, it's a fading glory. The first time we run across somebody who's uh, not very loving, we lose our love or we lose our poise when the pressure gets too intense. You can't produce ongoing, consistent character out of any other resource than the Lord. Irene Dealey made this uh, banner for us a couple of weeks ago, and it seems to me that that verse is really the essence of, of Christian living. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's the relationship that we sustain to him. He's a vine, and we're a branch. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The fruit he's talking about here is the fruit of, of Christian character, love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, the things that were missing in the life of, of this church. He says, come buy them from me. I'm the source of these things. I can give you that sort of ongoing fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. And we say, is that really true? I can do all sorts of things without Christ. And it's true. We can. You can make a lot of money as a businessman without Christ. You can run a 100-yard dash in nine seconds flat without Christ. You can find a handsome husband or a beautiful wife. But you can do nothing in terms of fruit. You can find a, a handsome husband, but you don't know how to live with him and make the marriage go. You can run the 100-yard dash in nine seconds flat, but you don't know how to handle the adulation and the pride that comes from that, and you tend to misuse it until it becomes empty. And you can make lots of money, but your wealth doesn't have any meaning to you. Sure, we can do lots of things, but we can do nothing that really satisfies, nothing in terms of real fruit, nothing in terms of character apart from Christ. And then thirdly, he says, Come, uh, get eye salve from me to anoint your eyes. And here, of course, he's referring to the... the uh, miracle drug, wonder drug, that they had developed in, in Laodicea in a symbolic way. He says, you have your, uh, your medicine that will cure eye problems, but uh, 
You'll never find a solution to your blindness from any other source than me. Come, come buy from me, and I'll teach you how to see. He's talking here about understanding in life. How do we, where do we get the wisdom to raise our children or to make our marriages go or to conduct our business uh, properly? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Lord, see. He gives us understanding. The uh, wisdom that we have doesn't always uh, produce results that, you know, that we would like, but we'll always be able to do what's right. That's what he's saying. As Jesus put it, if the eye is single, then the whole body will be full of light. If the eye is evil, and the word means dual, if we have one eye on one thing and one eye on the Lord, how great is that darkness? The reason we're so confused and we make such dumb decisions is because we have a dual eye. Well, Jesus says, if you keep your eyes on me, I'll give you wisdom and understanding. Oh, well, again, not that every decision you make will work out exactly the way you anticipate, but you'll be able to make right and just and proper decisions. And that comes from the Lord. These are the things that he promises, a sense of worth and character, righteousness in our life and understanding. And there isn't any other place to go to get those things. And if we think that we get them from any other source, we're just as blind as, as the Laodiceans. Now, it does take time to learn where our sense of worth comes from. It's not like flipping a switch. But as we progressively apply ourselves to understanding what God has said in, in his word and believing him and trusting him, we learn increasingly to find our worth in him and our righteousness and our wisdom in him. As Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the water. Come, you that have no money, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. For why do you labor for that which does not satisfy and spend your money for that which leaves you empty? Eat of me and you'll be satisfied. Why spend our time and spin our wheels looking for resources that never pay off when the Lord is the one who supplies. Then he says in verse 19, this word of encouragement, those whom I love, the phrase actually would read, as for me or as for myself, I reprove and discipline those I love. That's the way I do things. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The word that Jesus uses for love here is not the, the ordinary word for love in the New Testament that's employed for God. It's not agape. It's phileo. The word uh, means affection, warmth. He's fond of this church. They were doing some things that were distasteful to him, but he still has a warm affection for them. And because he does, he says he has to reprove and discipline. His love may be severe, but it's never cruel. And in this case, he says that because you've, you've left out of your life the things that really matter, I'm going to have to act. I'm going to see to it that, that you respond and come and, and buy what you need. He says, first, I reprove. The word means to call on the carpet. Some of you parents know what that means, to uh, call your children uh, uh, short, call them up short, and uh, speak to them sternly. And that's what the Lord does through the word and through brothers and sisters in Christ who take the word and reprove us by means of, of the truth. And then if we don't uh, give heed, he says, I, I discipline. He uses sterner measures. 
And he may in this, in various uh, instances, afflict us physically or emotionally or our circumstances may press in upon us. And he may have to hurt us. But it's all because he loves us. Those, he says, whom I love, my pattern is to reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and change your mind about the direction you're going. That's what the word repent means. And come buy from me the things that you need. And then in verse 20, this uh, verse that's so familiar to us, the word of introduction, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. The picture is that of the Lord standing outside the door of your life and mine, and, and he is seeking entrance. He both knocks and calls because you notice he's knocking and then he says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. So he's calling to us. And I'm sure that many of us from time to time have, have felt his presence outside the door, perhaps initially, sometime in the past when you first opened up your heart to the Lord, but perhaps even right now. You've been keeping the Lord at arm's length, keeping him out here where he can't really affect the inner life. And he stands at the door and he knocks. He doesn't force interest. He doesn't entrance. He knocks. And he calls. He says, Dave, Joe, let me in. And all we have to do is open the door. We don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to gussy our lives up. We don't have to have more spit and polish. We just open the door and let him have the run of the house. Some 30 years or so ago, a... Uh, uh, Robert Munger, who was then the pastor of First Presbyterian Church at, in Berkeley, California, wrote a little track called My Heart, Christ's Home, and I'm sure that many of you have seen it. It's the one we send out with our letters to visitors. And uh, in that little booklet, he describes the Lord standing outside the door of the house, and he knocks, and after a, a, a great struggle, the individual opens the door, and the Lord comes into the house. But uh, for a period of time, he, is, uh, he only can visit the living room. That's been all cleaned up for him, but uh, he's kept in the living room. And in no uncertain terms, he's told uh, there are rooms upstairs that are private. You can't, you can't have access to those rooms. One of them is the library with pictures on the walls that shouldn't be there and uh, memories and fantasies and various other things there from which the Lord is excluded. Other rooms in the house where he's locked out. And one day he goes upstairs and he finds the Lord leaning against the door of one of these rooms, knocking. He wants in, you see. He wants the run of the house. And again, with great struggle, he opens the door and the Lord moves into that area of the house and he begins to clean up that room until eventually he has the run of the entire house. Now, that's what the Lord wants. He wants to come into your life. Perhaps this is the first time You've known that, you've heard that the Lord is standing outside the door of your life and wants to come in. Or perhaps you made that decision years ago, but there are rooms in the house from which you've excluded him. Well, the truth holds. He stands outside the door and he knocks. And he says, if you open the door, I'll come in and dine with you. The word that he uses here is the word for the major meal in a Greek, in a, a Greek or Roman household. It was a big spread, believe me. They would lay out all the best silverware and they'd bring in the food in courses. And uh, people would recline around the table and they would eat way into the evening. 
we had a dinner like that Friday night. We went out with some friends, and after the eating was over, we pushed all the plates to the center of the table, and from 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock, we just sat around the table and, and fellowshiped with each other and loved each other and cared for each other. Just one of the greatest times. And that's what the Lord says He wants to do with us. He'll dine with us. And then in verse 21, his closing note, as with all of these letters, is to the overcomer. He who overcomes, that is, he who opens the door. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And I also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this is an eschatological promise that pertains to the future, our ultimate destiny. Those who open the door of their life to the Lord Jesus and give heed to his voice are overcomers. And they, like the Lord, will rule with him throughout eternity. Um, this is, as Brian Fisher said, a letter to the church of the closed door. And uh, that's a, that's a pertinent, uh, appropriate title, I think. I hope it's not true of us. I hope this is the church of the open door. That both uh, corporately and individually, we've opened up our lives so the Lord can begin to clean house and set things straight and give us the things that we need, our sense of worth, our righteousness, our wisdom. He stands at the door and knocks. All we have to do is invite him in. We were talking this last week uh, about this passage, and the comment was made not at all irreverently, this is the ultimate knock-knock. The Lord uh, says, knock-knock, <clears throat> and we say, who's there? He says, the Lord. We say, the Lord who? He says, the Lord of the universe. The Lord who flung the stars in space with his fingers, the one who gathers the sheep in his strong arm. The Lord who loves you, who died for you, who rose again for you, who's available to you to be everything you need. Knock-knock-knock-knock-knock. And we say, come in, Lord. And he comes in to, to dine with us, to fellowship with us. Just this past Wednesday, uh, a young man uh, stood to his feet in our Wednesday morning men's study, and he said, I have something I want to share with you. He said, I've been coming to Cole for the last uh, couple of months, and I've been sitting out there just uh, dying inside. Because I knew I had to make that decision. I had to invite Christ into my life. And I just, I struggled and I struggled. And I didn't want to come to church on Sunday mornings. I wanted to stay away, but I kept coming back. And every time I had to face that issue, I knew Christ was lock, knocking at the door of my life. But I just couldn't open the door. And finally, he said, last Sunday morning, just sitting out there in the benches, I opened up my life and Christ came in. And he said, now, I, as I drive around town, he's a salesman, he spends quite a bit of time in his car. He says, as I drive around town, occasionally I just burst into tears. He said, not because I'm sad, but because I'm so joyful. For the first time in my life, I know that things are right between God and me. There's peace. And I'm on my way. He said, I have a lot of problems. I need a lot of help. I'm, I need to depend upon you men. But things are right. Now, that's what Christ offers to us. You can't get that sense of satisfaction and wholeness from any other source. It comes only from the Lord. All of you know the words to that children's chorus, into my heart, into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. 
Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord. And if that song echoes the desire of your heart, will you say those words to yourself? Perhaps it's the first time you ever made that decision to invite Christ in your life. Or it may be that you became a Christian some time ago, but uh, you've been keeping the Lord uh, from invading every area of your life. Will you say those words? Into my heart. Into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that you love us just the way we are. We thank you for making yourself available to us, for being the resource that we need for all of life. Thank you for the sense of worth that comes from knowing you and knowing that we're known by you and loved by you. Thank you for your righteousness that makes possible the kind of life that we've always wanted to live and for understanding and wisdom that comes from your word. And we thank you for those things for coming into our lives, for making us the kind of people that we long to be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.